0: This episode of the If You Ask Betty podcast is brought to you by TechSmith's Snagit 2021. This updated version is available soon, October 20th, 2020. Find out more about this awesome tool at snagit.com. That's S N A G I T dot com. Welcome to the If You Ask Betty podcast. This podcast is designed to discuss all kinds of development topics for all kinds of learning professionals. I'm your host, Betty Danowitz, and today we're talking with Bianca Woods again about does visual design really matter in learning? Hi, Bianca. Hey, Betty. Welcome back to the If You Ask Betty podcast. I'm so excited. You are our very first return guest. We had such a good time the last time you were here. Remind listeners about who you are and what you do and all of that stuff.
1: So uh, Bianca Woods, I work with the Learning Guild. We just changed her name. And um, I'm a senior manager of programming there, which um, essentially involves putting together the in-person and online conference content. Anywhere from working with speakers, finding new topics, figuring out what people are most curious about, coming up with weird experiments that we can do at our events that are new and strange and fun. And then I also have a little side hustle where I have a company called Clever Raptor and I do um, instructional design and presentation design consulting.
0: Fabulous. And if you would like to hear more of Bianca, you can listen to her first episode on the If You Ask Betty podcast, episode 10, titled Disney's Tangled, Visual Design, and ComicMatch.com. And you are guaranteed a laugh. Some of, <laughs> you may even have a belly laugh at some point because we had such a good time with that one. It was super fun. It was super fun. But today we're chatting about does visual design really matter in learning? And so the last time we talked about bits and pieces of visual design, but we also spent a really a lot of time talking about comics and animation and Rapunzel and all of those things. And you were, you were building a comicmatch.com website. I'm going to have to go. Yeah. People are going to be Googling it. So, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about this whole idea of visual design, because I know a lot of people get really anxious when you start dropping words like visual design. So Let's just start with why. Why Why do you think that is? Why do people get
1: anxious? You know, it, it always reminds me of that anxiety you see with people in math. They're just like either you're good at it or you're not good at it. And there is nothing that can be done to change things. So if you've already decided that you are not good at drawing or art or things like that, there is this perception that it's not something you can change. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're if you're seeing it as this is just what I was born with and you don't feel you were born with any talent at that. Yeah, of course, it makes people anxious and uneasy. It's not fun to be like, here, go do this thing you think you suck at.
0: For sure. So what you're referring to is the idea of a fixed mindset,
1: Ooh.
0: <laughs> uh, a little double dipping on the development today. So, yeah. So like a fixed mindset thinking that, well, I'm not good at it, so. I just give up.
1: Totally. And with things where you can see the results and and see how not great they are or how they're not like it was in your head, it Mm, freaks people mm -hmm. out. Kind of like picking up an instrument, too, where everyone sucks at the beginning with a new instrument, but you immediately hear how much it doesn't sound like you want it to sound and it's off-putting.
0: You're right. You need some diligence, determination, discipline to keep going so that maybe you can kind of get over that anxious hump. So um, I just said hump on my podcast and I never said that before.
1: Do we have like a congratulation bell that you can just add in there? Ding.
0: <laughs> I'm not mature enough to say stuff like that. Okay. Well, today let's focus on some very specific questions around visual design, starting with that one I mentioned in the beginning. So, like, does visual design really matter in learning? You know, what are your thoughts on that, Bianca? And and why do you think what you think? Um
1: yes. And then the podcast is over. I, I've solved everything yeah. for you. And yeah.
0: everybody just switched <laughs> channels. Let's yep.
1: go home. No, absolutely. There is lots of information out there about how um, visual design choices can make things it um, easier for people to process information. The thing I talk about the most as a quick win is reducing cognitive load. There's only so much mm-hmm. stuff your brain can process at the same at one time. There are ways to leverage good design to reduce that cognitive load so people are taking in the information you want them to take in. And I mean, I think even if you're not someone who's comfortable with design, and I'm sure we'll get into the fact that I personally do not remotely believe it's a, it's a fixed mindset thing You were it's totally something everyone can learn how to do. Mm-hmm. Reducing cognitive load is something we absolutely want to do in instructional design and learning design. And this is one of the multitude of tools that can help you do that. Uh, it's also visuals are fantastic for conveying information in ways that in some cases are substantially easier to, to understand and remember than mm-hmm. text alone or text and numbers. Uh, I think anytime you look at a really good data visualization and compare it to like the Excel spreadsheet it came from, you go, oh, yeah, yeah I see where this is much easier for me to wrap yes. my brain around it.
0: Let's just clarify. That doesn't mean you're a visual learner. No,
1: no, please, no, no that's, learning not, that,
0: that's, that's not what that means. What it means is that when you can see it in picture form, you can relate to it more than a number on a page because every time you open your eyes, you see the world in a picture form, you see actual colors and lines and shapes, and so that's how you have learned to understand the world so it would make sense that a visual representation would be easier for you to sort of grasp and relate to.
1: Have you ever watched the Great British Bake Off? I have. Uh, And they have the technical challenge in the middle. And that's they give you just the um, instructions for baking something. It's always missing some information. It never has any pictures. And more often than not, in the technical challenge, you always hear people saying, I don't know what it's supposed to look like. I don't know Mm -hmm. what the step is supposed to look like. And it freaks them out. Mm -hmm. And That's why I love recipes where it has lots of pictures of each step, because there's something that the visuals there can convey that text alone just doesn't.
0: Let's just drop that saying right now. A picture is worth a thousand words, Bianca.
1: (laughs) I mean, some pictures are worth a thousand words, but they're not good words. Like a picture (laughs) is inherently in and of itself better than text. That's um, true. That's true. I that's do true. think that's important for people to realize. Um, we see, especially in e-learning, when I first started getting into e-learning 10 odd years ago, mm-hmm. there was a lot of, let's just put a picture in the e-learning to make it look kind of pretty. And it didn't serve any instructional purpose. And um, that doesn't help convey information that doesn't reduce cognitive load. So it's not just using images for the sake of them or using them willy-nilly. It's using them strategically.
0: Yes. So can you give us an example of um, a strategic teaching picture or something that you've done in the past that um, you were very strategic with your visual design?
1: One of the things that I've been specializing in for my sort of side hustle thing is not just designing e-learning content and presentation content for people, but um, taking kind of what they already have and reworking it so it's easier to, for people to process what so better fits their um, their design guidelines, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think um, like a while back, I had a project where it was all about um, this person wanted to con- take all of this text content that had been on slides and stuff and convert it into some complex infographics and then mm-hmm. use that for their the presentation they wanted to do. And it really was, in that case, very, very dull information. <laughs> like mm-hmm. here's a whole bunch of bullet points, yay. And what I was able to do with data visualization, with images, um, was to make that information really pop, to use the images to tell a story too. And you know, not all of it was graphs, some of it was maps, some of it was just depictions of, I, I believe, products, And it really is just being strategic about what's the big takeaway I want someone to have. Um, That's a big thing when you're choosing uh, graph types is what's the takeaway. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you can have some mismatches where a graph, you pick one kind of graph and it doesn't actually reinforce the point you're trying to make. So you have to be really careful. Um, A lot of it was also... Like if you've used the the graph templates in say something like PowerPoint, sometimes what it spits out automatically isn't terribly readable. Yes. So a lot of it was kind of going, okay, here's my starting point. How do I make this much more readable knowing where my audience is going to be interacting with this? So it really was taking what had been very dull content that didn't necessarily have a good narrative flow and using data visualization and graphics to not just pretty it up, but make the key points stand out and to give it more of a narrative.
0: I like that. I like the idea that you're using the pictures to sort of craft the narrative, which boy, do we say that a lot lately. My <laughs> goodness. I was watching GMA this morning, Good Morning America and um they were say said something about and you're using that to craft the narrative. I was like, what? Are these people in training? What is happening? <laughs> That's, that's our term. What are you talking about? But, um, but yeah, so I like how you're talking about that. So, so one thing I've noticed, at least for me, is that I choose elements that I know will help people relate to what it is that I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So icons, people love icons. Icons are the thing. And especially icons of people. They love, people love the people. <laughs> and I love the people. So I try to use those when I can. And then I prefer photos over any other type of um, sort of pictorial. That's just my preference. But I typically look for a photo that like if let's say I'm looking for something that says coaching that I'm trying to, you know, I'm doing something on coaching. I scroll through coaching photos or look through different um, libraries until I find one that I look at and I say and it like almost jumps off the screen at me and says, oh, this is somebody who's coaching. Like there's no doubt about it. And that's when I'll put that in. Because you don't want to do, like you said, you don't want to get to where something that you're putting in there that you think goes with that, the person that that's actually receiving this content is like, uh, I don't know why they have that picture in there.
1: Yeah, you are, I mean, it's such a learning and development thing is, is keep your user in mind. You are not typically the end user. Right. Someone else's. And I see this with icon- icons all the time, where sometimes I'll look at something with an icon on it and be like... What do they think this icon means? Because it's not abundantly clear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll get
0: swayed away from icons because of that. So like if you ever search for an icon for like danger, there's like Mm. six of them. And only one of them looks like danger to me. The others look like, (laughs) (laughs) like a yield sign or like something else or, you know, do not enter. And I'm like, that's not but that's not what I'm trying to say. So sometimes the icon is not quite what you need because it doesn't really communicate to everybody the same message. You're right.
1: I actually, I don't know if you know this. I have an Instagram account that's all warning signs, like weird warning signs that I've found. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yes. I'll shoot you the link. Um, Do it. Yeah. I want to follow it. Partially why I like collecting these things is the cognitive dissonance of a sign that is supposed to convey some sort of sense of be careful or danger, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't succeed. right? But yeah, it's tricky, too, because you have to try and find a visual language when you're leveraging iconography, warning signs, stuff like that, that's going to work for as much of your audience as humanly possible. There's some really interesting stuff you can read about uh, work that was done with the warning signs for where we dump nuclear waste.
0: Toxic waste. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yep. So essentially, when they were trying to come up with the warning signs for this, they were going, all right. Well, we know what a warning sign would look like now, but this stuff's going to be really bad for a really long time, and we don't know how language is going to shift, how people's cultural perceptions of iconography is going to shift. So how do we design a warning sign that might need to apply to someone bumping into this 300 years from now? Is that why it looks like the devil? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But I I, I do think you just want to go for sort of a universal put the fear of God in you even if you don't (laughs) understand the words. That makes so much sense.
0: That's why it looks like the devil. So. Oh my gosh, you're so, how did you know that? Hang on, I'm Googling it. Yes, it (laughs) looks like the devil. Biohazard, biohazard, toxic waste. Okay, so toxic waste looks like a fan, but then it looks like it has morphed into the one that kind of looks like the devil. You want to know, okay, it's so funny you brought this up. The reason that I even remembered what what that means is because back in the day, Like this is like fifteen years ago. My mom got her first computer virus. Oh no! And it like took over her computer and then turned her desktop image into that devil sign, uh, the biohazard sign. And so that's the only reason I
1: knew that. Oh wow! I have not accessed that memory in a long time. Well, that is what your podcast interviews are for—making you remember (laughs) weird stuff. I don't know. I don't I
0: guess maybe. I don't know. I think um I think you bring it out of me honestly. I'm glad. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to be a weird influence. I'm so excited that you are. Um okay, so all right. So we'll come back. So that was a fun little rabbit trail. Hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. Um so coming back, we we're talking about what is visual design? Does it really matter? You said yes, half the people turned off the podcast. That's cool. So <laughs> I would say you definitely make a compelling argument that yes, visual design matters, but it brings up a couple other questions that I think we should talk about. So things like should everyone as in everyone in L and D learn design skills? Like what if I'm not good at art? What if I'm not creative? Do I have to take a graphics design
1: class? Like what, what do you think about those things? Like do, do we need to do this? Personally, I think there's, value in having some baselines. Um, Because of rapid development tools, a lot of us are in positions where we are asked to do some kind of visual design work. Um, It's becoming much, much less common that that's um, done by someone like a dedicated graphic design expert, which Mm I mean, it still is. Uh, but a lot of times you'll be doing in-house, you'll be doing it yourself, either with something like Storyline or Captivate or PowerPoint or something else. So I think it's helpful for people in learning development to have that a baseline. Maybe you're never going to be an expert. Maybe you would never be able to apply for a graphic design job. That's totally cool. We We can't learn how to do everything,
0: mm-hmm. but having
1: a few baseline skills in visual design can help you avoid things that really just don't work full stop, can help you make what you create, not get in the way of your content Mm -hmm. and can also help, you know, when you've hit a point where you're like, I absolutely need to ask someone who has expert level skills because this is past the point where I'm able to do it.
0: Yes. Like when, anytime you open an Adobe application. (laughs) You have to stop and ask somebody because it's not very intuitive. I love you, Adobe. I don't want any bad emails from people saying they don't like me because I said that, but it is true. It's not very intuitive. You gotta kind of gotta get a a grip first before you get started on Adobe. Do you did, did you ever take a graphics design class?
1: So I used to be an art teacher. That's what I, I originally that. went I to school that. for. Yes, I know. So, yeah, um, my undergrad degree is in art education my master's is in educational design and technology. So yes, so you took you took a couple. <laughs> yeah, just a smidge. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting. Um, I have some of my slide decks for my first year of teaching. And it is very fascinating slash horrifying <laughs> for me to look back. Because it's abundantly clear that Um, expertise in fine art doesn't immediately transfer over (laughs) to graphic design. Like I was able to build those skills pretty quickly because the foundation I already had from fine art. But oh, wow, my first PowerPoint decks are terrible. They're horrible. (laughs) I show them sometimes in presentations as examples of what not to do, as well as examples of it's a journey, this whole visual design thing for all of us. And some of us started out with stuff that looked this bad and now it's better. Hooray. You're right. It is a journey because like recently
0: with, with the whole pandemic, I have been resurrecting one hour leadership sessions that I was doing in Mm -hmm. 2017, which was not that long ago, folks. We're talking like two and a half, three years ago. And I opened them up and I'm like, Oh my God, who made this? (laughs) I mean, I made it. Right. But it's like, it's in standard format, not widescreen. I'm like, what? Like, why would I even do that? And there's like pictures, but they're small. And now my pictures tend to bleed off the edge. And so it's Yay. like, it, yeah, it's interesting. Like, like you said, to like go back and look at how far you've come. I took one graphic design class, and this will tell you, this will date me just a little bit. And we had to go and take it in a computer lab at the school. And we were on Macs like the big ones, not like an iMac now that's, you know, this beautiful flat screen, a big old Mac. And we, we learned, um, Quark?
1: Quartz? Oh my goodness. Which one?
0: It's one of those two, something with a Q. And it was not very easy, but it was better than Adobe. But anyways, um, <sighs> sorry, I get that in there. But yeah, that's where I first learned any type of graphic design. So that was like 1998.
1: Yeah, I think my first thing that was close to graphic design um was my undergrad we had to take an Adobe Illustrator class. So this would have been mm, 2002 I think cuz it was in my third year. You know, I don't even mind Illustrator, but it's it's this thing where it was only available online and I had never ever ever done digital art before. And this was this was online in 2002. So oh. That's a this good was time not right fine there. online education. Mm-hmm. Um, this was it was really, really bad. And it was the exact kind of skill set where I really would have loved to have been in a room with a teacher who I could just popped over and been like, hey, I'm having trouble with this. Can you show me? Yes. Yeah. So it was the worst possible match of an online class for me. I did not, it was not my best grade in university. Um, I don't think I have anything from it. I would be proud to show someone. I, I don't even think I have any of my school files. from You're that like, I don't I- need to keep
0: that. I can get into Illustrator, but I know just enough to get frustrated. You know, just enough to get halfway to where I want to go. And then I'm like, oh, I know there's some magic button I'm supposed to click and I can't find it. Anyways, but that's why we have such a great network of friends out there in our learning development industry that can help us when we can't figure out what the next step is in uh, in Illustrator. Hey there, I gotta jump in again and tell you more about Snagit 2021 from TechSmith. I've been a Snagit user for a decade on my day job work PC and just recently added it to my iMac at home. It is easily the coolest screen capture tool out there and not just any screen capture or snipping tool. Nope, Snagit lets you grab the screen or a portion of the screen that you want, copy it and immediately add colorful helps to that screenshot like arrows, Text, shapes, stamps, all that cool visual editing stuff. Here's some great news for you. For being an If You Ask Betty listener, you can get 10% off Snagit with maintenance at Snagit.com. Just enter AskBetty at checkout and snag this great deal. See what I did there? Find out more about this awesome tool at Snagit.com. That's S-N-A-G-I-T.com. Okay, back to the show. Okay. I'm coming back. Let's get practical. Okay. What can we do, whether we have design skills or not, when we are dropped into a project and it is overwhelmingly ugly? Yeah. How,
1: how do we fix it? It's hard. Okay. Especially if you don't have a design, a visual design background where you have this gut feeling that you're like, I know this does not work. But not only do you not exactly know how to fix it, it just feels like there's so much going on that you couldn't possibly even make a, like, make a dent in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done a presentation on this, and I talk about this idea that we're surrounded by good design all the time. So even if you couldn't articulate what good design is, you kind of have a rough sense of, well, I know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why you, you can look at something that is Uh, unescapably ugly. And even if you don't have a design background, you can recognize, well, that's not good. And that's why it's stuff like this, where I I recommend that people have some very, very baseline design skills to help them dig their way out of this. One of the easiest things to do that people don't always associate with graphic design, but is absolutely a component of graphic design is look at it and see how much you can scale back. What can you cut out? This is Mm -hmm. something we do in instructional design all the time, especially when SMEs give you that text dump of here you want have, this is everything on the planet on this topic. And you're like, I need 10 minutes. Right, right. Uh, so you can apply that same lens that you use to evaluate content, to evaluate the visuals and what's on the screen, or what's on the page, whatever it is you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, look for things that, you know, aren't adding anything to the content look for items that are maybe repeated um you can kind of see this in graphs sometimes where there's repeated content where you can pull one bit out and you still understand what's being conveyed if there's lots of little images do you need all of them sometimes Mm -hmm. you maybe do but sometimes you don't and just that muscle you already have for pulling out unnecessary content can help you pull out unnecessary visual information and even just doing that can make a world of difference to whether something is hideously ugly or at least just mm. kind of like eh. it just makes it feel more after you've done that feel a little bit more like it's something you can tackle.
0: Yeah. Those are good tips. You know, as you're talking through that, I'm like, do I do that? I think I do that on a regular basis. Like think about, okay, what's, what's repetitive? What can I pull out? What visually um, can I minimize? And I think that's, those are awesome tips.
1: Just Marie Kondo it. Just hold everything in your hands and ask yourself (laughs) if it sparks joy. And if it doesn't, you throw it away.
0: (laughs) Does this spark joy? No. But if I do that, if I do that with everything, I would be There wouldn't be much left. I'll tell you that. And some people be uh, thrown out the door too. Something else that I think a lot of people that are listening probably encounter. What about when we have corporate visual design standards? So we're talking like full on branding requirements. When you deal with a corporate brand, you get to the point where you're like, I am so tired of using this color. I hate this font because you, you as a designer have seen it over and over and over again. So how can we make something that feels like it's uniquely something we've created and still follow these standards? I
1: actually love good corporate design standards. I love them. Now, not every... Corporation or every company has good ones, right? Sometimes true. they're they're really not so hot, and they don't actually lead you to good design decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but prior to working for the Learning Guild, I worked for um, BMO. It's one of the big uh, Canadian banks up here, and their design standards are lovely. They're wonderful. They're very clear. And if you're someone who does creative work, you probably have felt this before that sometimes having limitations put on you actually can help your creativity. Yes, you already have some things decided for you. So it's within the realms of those rules, what can you do that feels different, but still the same? And that's, it's actually kind of a fun challenge sometimes. So with BMO, there were very distinct colors that you could use, um, but there were some secondary colors and you could kind of, as long as you kept the secondary color use down a bit, um, that it wasn't the dominant color on the screen, you could still use them, and that helped shake things up a lot, especially for graphs. Um, they had in the standards some really good thoughts about what kind of images feel on brand and off brand, and I actually found that really, really useful for when I was searching for stock photos and trying to figure out what was a good fit. Mm-hmm. It actually gave me good guidelines. Um, there were some graphic depictions of things. BMO uses circles a lot and circles you're like you're like oh, okay what kinds of ways can I experiment with making circle treatments of things and there's really just having worked there for 5 years there's a lot of different things you can do with circles and it's it would always feel on brand but there were so many different ways to experiment with it and have it be different i've worked with design guidelines that are a little more difficult with some of my client work. One of the things that I find challenging, and I'm sure other people find this challenging too, is um, either colors that you're like, I would never have picked those colors for your brand colors. Mm -hmm. That's a challenge. (laughs) I did some work uh, on a project related to the Red Cross and a lot of their secondary colors were grays. Mm. And that looks really depressing. Yeah, (laughs) there's only so much you you can do. Yeah. Uh, So a lot of it was... using a lot of white space and a lot of white area with touches of the gray and touches of that really that very iconic red cross red and so it would still feel on brand I was still using their colors I was still using the grays but just leveraging a lot of white Mm -hmm. empty area made it feel less oppressive Um, some of their original design templates had had huge amounts of gray and it just it was heavy feeling playing within the rules of the standards but Knowing when to bend the rules, or th- it's all that was almost a cheat because the, no one's going to complain if you use a lot of white in most cases and then you right. touch touching their colors. And so, even if you have a really awkward, uncomfortable, horrifying brand colors to work with, that's a, that's a good way to work around it. It is, you're right. What about when we get
0: stuck creatively? And yeah. you know, any hot tips on how to jumpstart when we stall out?
1: Yeah, and this happens all the time. Like, you can be new to design, you can be. De- done design for 30 years, you are still going to have times where you just stumped. There's a few things that I tend to do because yeah, I get stumped just like everyone else. Sometimes you just got to walk away, go do something else. If you're you're like crunched for time, if you can walk away from your desk and go out for an actual physical walk, that's actually really refreshing. It's helpful. You just need to let your brain kind of process and relax, get yourself away from it because if you just keep trying, keep trying, at some point it's just like smashing your head against a wall, you're n- nothing you're gonna do is gonna be any good. You're just gonna be in pain. You'll not have made any progress. So just taking some time away. I have a- numerous Pinterest boards and one of the things I use them for is pinning things that I just like the design of. I squirrel them away for a rainy day and when I'm feeling stumped or like I don't have any good ideas, I'll go and browse through that Pinterest board. That's a great and, idea. And it's it's so easy. It takes minimal amounts of time to do, like, you know, a few minutes here and there. But when you really need it, it will totally save you. And it's not so much, you know, I go to that Pinterest board and I go and copy one of the designs that's there. I just kind of look through it look at the things I like. And sometimes it'll inspire an idea. Yeah. Like, I'll go like, oh, well, that that text treatment was kind of interesting in that, you know, advertisement for a cup of coffee. Maybe I could try something like that. It, it's almost like design vitamins.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like you a that. boost. Design caffeine. It gives you a little boost, and you should also make yourself a cup of coffee too, if you want, uh, or because it's more than one cup of coffee. I mean, multiples is fine too. <laughs> Whatever you got to do. But yeah, I like that idea too. And I remember doing using Pinterest when we were moving, and the house we were coming in was pretty much move-in ready. But we we had like new new things we'd never had before in other houses. Like we all of a sudden we had a mudroom. i was so excited to have it, but I'm like I have no idea what to do with this. Like what what goes in a mudroom? What what I put in here? What kind of shelving? Do I want to use it for laundry? Like mm-hmm. I don't know. So I went out on Pinterest and looked for stuff like that. And I haven't I haven't touched Pinterest since we since about a couple months after we moved, but it was really helpful when I was looking for ideas to be able to kind of throw those in a bucket that. It wasn't necessarily on my kitchen table, but it was accessible to me quick and easy.
1: Yeah. And the neat thing with Pinterest is even if you can't articulate what things you're drawn to, you'll start seeing patterns in what you pin. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you make a Pinterest board and it's all about um, advertisements that you think are clever, you might not know much about advertising or about visual design and graphic design for advertising. But I tell you what, after you've been pinning in that board and you've got like 40 or 50 pins, you're going to start seeing some things that repeat that you were personally drawn to all the time. And you can start going, oh, okay, I like this for that yeah. kind of design. Yeah. Um, my husband and I did that with furniture. <laughs> so earlier on in our relationship, he wasn't r- really amazing at knowing what he liked with furniture. Uh, so I would have to go to stores with him and show him things. And he would just be like, I don't like that. I don't like that. I guess I like that. And I would be like, okay, tell me more about why. So then I could start narrowing down what he was keen on. And he just, it was so alien to him that he couldn't articulate why he was drawn to something. So we started putting together Pinterest boards and would just pin the furniture he bumped into that he was like, yeah, that's pretty nice. And we started figuring out what the commonalities were. It was so
0: helpful. Yeah, that's great. That's a great idea too. Someday I think if you ask Betty, we'll have a Pinterest board. I'm not really sure what I'll do with it, but I'll figure something out. Because why not? I'm not going on TikTok. Those of you who are asking, nope. And of course, I would, by the time watch
1: that Betty on TikTok.
0: <laughs> by the time, by the time this episode airs, I may be on TikTok. So you might want to double check and see if I'm on. Okay. anyways. <laughs> but um, but cool. Yeah, those are really good. You got, you got me all excited now, thinking about going for a walk and then pinning some stuff on Pinterest. How can we start today? So we kind of answered this a little bit, but what are your best resources to help us think about visual design and start making that sort of a, an integral part of our design process?
1: One of the things that really helped me as I was trying to think about taking my understanding of sharing information and thinking about the graphic design side of it is a book called Presentations on." So it is not technically a design book. It is a book about presentation design and it's by Gar Reynolds. And his approach to presentation design is very visual, very simplified, very stripped down to just what you need. And I think inadvertently, he ended up making a really good book that's also good for instructional design techniques and also says a lot about how to think about visual design from the perspective of sharing information. Um, there's a sequel that he did that's called Presentation Zen Design that I also really like. I own both, so now I'm really just making sure you have all the excuses to go buy new books. Thank so you. I love that. Um, but I, that. I'd say start with Presentation Design. I, I enjoyed it quite a lot, and I think it has so much crossover appeal to the work that we do. And I think yeah. You know, it's not technically a visual design book, but it'll teach you so much about how to think about visual design in new ways. Another thing that I recommend if you feel like being a little nerdy about design is a podcast called 99% Invisible. Hmm. And it is all about the design of everyday things. And I think... What's lovely about this podcast is it helps you see design and things that you haven't necessarily thought of as designed. And it'll cover everything from radioactive cat designs for like a sports team, you know, those um, blow up wavy um, contraptions that they usually have at car dealerships. The yes. dancers. Yes, there's yeah. an episode about how those were created. There's an episode that covers the design of a fish cannon a what for, what? for helping for a fish cannon. You, oh Betty, you got to know about the fish cannon. What so, is a, what is a <laughs> fish cannon? So you know how they'll put up dams, and it gets in the way of fish migration. Like yes. salmon are like, well, I need to get over there because that's where I'm supposed to lay my eggs, and now there's a, a dam in my way. Yeah. Um. So, <laughs> what are the solutions? for um, helping fish around some of these artificial barriers us human beings have created is a fish cannon and it's like a pneumatic tube for moving fish so you, you put a fish in the tube and it zooms the fish to another place like it's so much like a pneumatic tube it's ridiculous like um, like like at the bank
0: like yeah, a little the, bit
1: but you like, don't you, put you, the, go through- drive through in the bank it sends you a uh, uh, you send the tube. What? yeah, you don't you don't have to put the fish in a little capsule, but it is very it has very much that same feel. I, I cannot recommend enough um, to Google this and watch videos because it's eminently enjoyable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, always get, I always walk away from a conversation
0: with you with like seven things to Google and I'm never <laughs> disappointed.
1: Sometimes we sell ourselves short on design skills because we don't think of certain work as design work. Mm-hmm. And I think 99% Invisible, like, it's really, really fun stories. Like, if you like storytelling, it's great. But I think it helps you see the world in new ways. And, you know, I've always been really keen on visuals, on design. But I think it made me appreciate the world even more, like weird little things that I might never have thought about how much care and effort was put into making them. Yes. This makes you a little more grateful for all the great design that's in the world. It does. And then you start to notice things, anomalies
0: in design. So like Mm -hmm. the other day, I finally found hand sanitizer. Now, I am not, I don't like hand sanitizer generally. And I would otherwise just be like, I'm not doing it. But, you know, when you go into a store now and you come out to the car, you want hand sanitizer before you touch your car. Just, just because.
1: No, that's, yeah.
0: Because people are gross. So that's just because of that. So, okay, fine. So I, um, finally found some the other day at, uh, at the target and I went to grab a bottle of it and I looked and there was this one kind and then there was the same kind and it had the same bottle, but the cap was different. And I was like, well, why? And then there was another one that had a third cap and I had to pick them up and look at them to see if they were really any different. And they weren't. They just had different caps because it's a pandemic and they were trying to make as many as they could and they ran out of caps. I'm sure that's what it was. I even looked at the active ingredients. I'm like, why is it? Because the design, the cap on top of the bottle was different. I was like, and, and most people probably wouldn't even have noticed, except that I look I look at those things all the time because I'm noticing like the little details of design because that's what I have to do for my job. Yeah, and then I then I'm just shaking my head. I like walking away from there, just shaking my head, and my kid's like, "What's wrong?" I'm like, "Nothing," and like it bothered me that there was one that had like a flip top with like a a hole that would squirt it out. And then there was one where it like you push it down and it pops up on the other side. And I'm like, well, but why are they, why are they different? I feel like,
1: uh, I mean, I think about, all right, if I'm using this in a real life circumstance where I need hand sanitizer and I want this to be as fast and quick as possible, which is the easiest to use, I think the right. flip top. Yes. I yeah. like the ones where it kind of pops out. I always find those get gummy. They do. They get gross. And like, you don't want your hand sanitizer to be gross. You don't want to have trouble opening your hand sanitizer. But yeah, this is how you'll see the world. You'll start looking at caps yeah. and go, which is the best for ease of use. Right. And so now, we're, for two minutes, we've been talking about hand
0: sanitizer. As one does. True. <laughs> this is our new world, Betty. Welcome to twenty twenty. Right. We we're talking about the cap of the hand sanitizer. So like, so like, yeah. So you will start to see that those resources you gave are great. I was googling them while you were talking, and I was yes. really uh. Uh, my eyes were lighting up. Well, as we are wrapping up, I want to ask you Bianca, you've already answered my other regular questions in um in a different podcast. So I have a new question for you. You're the first person on my podcast to answer this mm. question. What is a quote or a truth that you can leave us with
1: to inspire us as we move forward today? All right, I'm going to not I'm going to botch the quote slightly. So please okay. don't come after me Adventure Time fans. But <laughs> There is an Adventure Time episode, if you've never watched Adventure Time, it's an animated show, very easy to find GIFs of, where one of the characters, a dog named Jake, is is, is ruminating on how you get good at things, and really summed it up so succinctly with, um, I think the quote is, the first step towards getting kind of good at something is sucking, or sucking is the first step towards getting kind of good at something. Yeah. One of those two. Yeah. Yeah. It's the thing that I always would tell my art students is this. You've got to kind of work past the suck. Anytime you're new to something, you're probably going to suck at it. And it's totally okay and normal. And it's it's really big with visual design because people tell themselves, they spook themselves out of it. I'm not good at it. I wasn't born with art skills. I can't do it. No, no. You're just at the same sucky level that everyone was when they started. Yeah. And you you keep, we work past the suck. And with practice, you get way better. Embrace the suck.
0: Embrace the suck. Lean into the suck. Lean in. I am not mature enough <laughs> to have this conversation <laughs> any further. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Uh, definitely the best quote I've heard of the,
1: of maybe the series. A really, maybe in a really
0: long time. <laughs> no. Um all right. So I do want to just take one second, remind listeners that if they want to hear more of Bianca, you can, again, listen to, I already said this, I'm saying it again, listen to her first episode here on the If You Ask Betty podcast, episode 10, Disney's Tangled, Visual Design, and ComicMatch.com. Thank you so much, Bianca Woods, for sharing your thoughts today. And thank you so much, listeners. Watch for another episode of the If You Ask Betty podcast soon. Peace out.